You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Tracy Diamond from the Pratt Library. Thank you for joining us at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped tonight. Tonight we're very excited to welcome the talented Laura Vandenberg and Nate Brown in conversation. Uh, We were really lucky to have Laura in Baltimore for a few years, um, so I'm so excited she could stop here on the third hotel tour. I've been a huge fan of her surreal, weird, biting fiction since I heard her read from Cannibals however many years ago. The third hotel brings together horror and elevator sales, though not in the same plot point, exactly. I love that about Laura's writing. She brings the mundane and the bizarre together, like cannibals babysitting or acrobats and leaving your husband, creating an unusual, thrilling narrative. Nate Brown is the managing editor of the Austin-based literary journal American Short Fiction and has an incredible eye for literature and just writing beautifully. You feel the power of creativity in his presence. Is he being shy? So so Laura and Nate are going to, um, first Laura's going to read a little bit, um, then Laura and Nate are going to talk, and then we'll open it up for questions from all of you. Um, And of course, the Ivy Bookshop has the novel for sale in the hallway, So if you're up to it, please support your independent bookstores. Please welcome Laura Vandenberg and Nate Brown. Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you, Tracy, for the introduction, and thank you all for coming out. Um, I lived in, yeah, I lived in Baltimore for three wonderful years, and I miss it every day, sincerely. So it's, um, it's always really nice to be back. Um, I'm going to read just for five or six minutes, and then Nate and I will talk, and then we will talk. Um, And I'm going to read just the first few pages of a chapter that comes early in the book. And to give you a little context for the novel, um, The Third Hotel concerns a couple named Claire and Richard. Richard is a horror film scholar, which is my secret dream job. (laughs) Wholly unqualified, but a job I want nevertheless. And um, Richard is killed in a hit-and-run car accident before the novel begins under sort of mysterious circumstances. And at the time of his death, he was scheduled to go to a film festival in Havana, and Claire ends up going in his place. Um, But the pages that I'm going to read uh, tell you a little bit about what was going on with Claire and Richard before his death. In her former life, Claire was a sales rep for ThyssenKrupp. Her area was elevator technologies, and her territory was the Midwest. She liked the job because it involved an endless amount of travel to seemingly anonymous places. She had been to Nebraska 47 times. What was there to see in Nebraska? A surprising amount, really. She knew where to get the best steak in Omaha when she cut into it blood pools on the white plate. She had seen dawn turn the plains as lustrous and vast as an ocean. Once, late at night, she parked her rental car on the side of the road and walked into a cornfield. She stood on a dirt path surrounded by dark stalks and imagined a harrowing chase through the corn that culminated in her murder at the hands of a mass killer with a knife. In the night sky, she spotted the red flash of planes through gossamer clouds, and if she listened very carefully, more carefully than she'd listened to anything in months or maybe even in years, she was able to make out the dull roar of their passing. She got back into her rental car and drove away and wondered if this was what people meant when they talked about mindfulness. Early in her career, she learned that one of the most important rules of travel was this. The answer to nearly everything could be found in the signs. This way to baggage claim, this way to the ticket counter, this way to Cleveland, this way to Omaha, this way to the hotel bar. 
Travel was one of the few arenas in life where clear and correct direction was so readily at hand. Lately, she had been tasked with selling a new kind of cable to find hotels and high-rise office buildings and factories. This cable was made of carbon fiber and allowed elevators to travel twice as fast as they could with steel. They lived in New Scotland, a town on the outskirts of Albany. In their condominium, she kept a small rolling suitcase in the bedroom closet, stocked with miniature toiletries, exercise clothes, an inflatable neck pillow, and the book she brought with her on every flight, but could never seem to finish. The Two Faces of January by Patricia Highsmith. It wasn't an especially long novel, but on plane she could only read a few paragraphs before the words filled her with a crippling and inexplicable dread, driving the book back down into the depths of her shoulder bag. It was not so much the story that unsettled her, but the hidden thing she sensed quivering under the surface. Subtext, she supposed this was called, and she did not care for it. Every time she saw her suitcase in the bedroom closet, tucked behind a mesh laundry bin, she imagined it was waiting for her second secret self. She traveled so frequently, it was not uncommon for her to wake in the middle of the night and think for a moment, where am I? She did not find this disconcerting even when it happened in her own bed. Excuse me. But once she made the mistake of mentioning those midnight thoughts to her husband, and he looked at her like she was terminally ill. The travel had long been a point of contention between them. Why bother being married if you're always leaving? A reasonable question, and she couldn't say that she had an answer beyond the demands of her work. She wanted to be married, and she wanted to leave. The two did not seem mutually exclusive. She had this second secret self that she didn't know how to share with anyone, and when alone, that self came out into the open. In the months before his death, her husband's own secret self started coming out into the open, too. She could only assume this other self had been waiting inside him all along. The year of the great change... He was the same, and he was different. The way he looked when his sleep changed. His face used to be smooth and expressionless, almost mask-like. But then one night she found him sleeping with lips parted into a wide, unsettling smile. He switched coffee mugs, trading out the exorcist for the ghoulish face of Michael Myers. He was newly skittish around dogs. He stopped adding salt to his food. He stopped eating bananas. His pace on the sidewalk changed. He used to be a brisk, impatient walker, and then one day he began moving so slowly and contemplatively. It was as though every tree branch was a source of wonder. Claire struggled to imagine what, 40 years into a life, would cause a person to suddenly change the way they walked. There were alien, interminable silences when she called from the road, And when she was home, he took long, solitary strolls in the evening hours, a symptom that would eventually lead to his demise. Another symptom. He started demanding to know what she did on the road, how she accounted for all those hours alone, no matter how many times she told him the simple truth. In a hotel room, her favorite thing in all the world was to switch off every light and everything that made a sound. TV, phone, air conditioner, faucets and sit naked on the polyester comforter and count the breaths as they left her body. Naked, her husband would shout, as though she had provided him with damning evidence. He had been an angry person for as long as she had known him, but it was a secret of anger. Most people found him loose and lighthearted, easygoing. That was the word people used, and in time she became suspicious of anyone who could be described in such terms. What was so easy about going? Naked and alone, she would say back. Naked and alone. As a married couple, they'd had perfect years, and they'd had shit years, but she had never in her life experienced a year that so thoroughly dismantled her with confusion. On her next trip, she thought about what he would see if he ever were to trail her on the road. 
A woman marking up sales reports with a pink highlighter. A woman watching workout infomercials with the volume on mute. A woman eating room service quesadillas in the bathtub instead of reading that novel she claimed to be nearly finished with. A woman doing a little exercise routine, squats and sit-ups, bicep curls with bottled waters, completed with the hope that he would notice the smooth lines when he put his hands on her body. A woman breathing naked on the toilet seat, a woman breathing naked in an armchair, a woman breathing naked before the bathroom mirror in the kind of lighting that could make a person reconsider every choice they had ever made in life. A woman breathing naked in the dark. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, uh, Laura, thank you so much. I'm, I'm going to start with just a couple of quick comments. Um, Laura Vandenberg is a writer who um, I've been aware of for some time. When I was an OA student, uh, Laura won the Desank Prize for her first story collection, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us, which I believe the story title has just been optioned for film. Yeah. Kudos. Um, but that was some time ago. And this, with interest that I read that collection and sort of followed Laura's career, and it was only later that I met Laura and um, got to know her personally. But what's been interesting, kind of watching how she's developed over two story collections now, two novels, is there are some things that she can't get away from in her fiction. I sort of threatened her over a drink earlier that I was going to ask this question. But among those things are relationships between siblings, relationships between married people, unexplained disappearances, and some more broadly elements of mystery. Laura's work sort of straddles this line where it's not um, hard genre work in, in, in the way that you would think of like a, a Dean Koontz or a Tony Hillerman, but she's certainly playing with these tropes that come from harder genre work. And when I say harder genre, I mean work that's largely um, where the momentum comes from plot rather than character information. So I want to start here and ask you a broad question about all of your work, both the why and the how. Like what drew, what draws you to write um, books, including The Third Hotel, which contain incredible elements of mystery, and um, do you generally read mysteries, or does this come from a reading interest, or does this come from a desire to write in a particular novel? Thank you. Um, oh my gosh. Sorry. Any questions? <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I mean, just I'll start with the, the, the genre piece. Um, I, I mean, I do, I do love and feel very influenced by the kind of crime genre and the detective genre. I also think that at the same time, I lean toward not resolving scenarios and kind of characters as cleanly as, as sometimes works that are totally faithful to the genre conventions do. And Nate and I were talking um, before this event about how we're both Geminis. And so that that also that means we're going to start and stop like 100 conversations. There are going to be a lot of non sequiturs, so just prepare yourselves. Um, but one thing that I think that also means just to pin aesthetics on astrology, if I may, uh, is that, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I, I think I'm also drawn to sort of putting things that look like they would be strange bedfellows in the same space and seeing if they can, seeing if I can figure out a way to get them to connect and get them to speak to each other. Um, and I think that that's certainly, you know, I, on the one hand, I'm very influenced by um, genre to a certain degree, and I love noir, I love the, 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 you know, the detective with these procedural, and find real pleasure in working with some of those conventions. Um, but I'm also, you know, there's a lot of experimental fiction that I love. Um, there's a lot of literature and translation that I love that's been hugely influential where the sense of reality is, you know, um, is, is sort of more fantastic or tinged with, with the strange and the peculiar. Um, and I, all, I also think, you know, being from Florida, I, I mean, it is a place, it's a big state, um, and so it's tempting to make kind of sweeping generalizations, I think, even if you're from there. But, you know, in my memory, it, as a child, like, it is a place where the kind of ordinary and the fantastic do tend to sit alongside each other. 
Um, it's all contextual, of course, but you know, I'm so many of my detailed you know, memories from being a teenager is like really mundane, like 90s suburbia. You know, there were a lot of parking lots and chain restaurants and things like that, and Ill like ill-advised boyfriends. Um, and there were also, which could happen anywhere. There were also a lot of alligators, which maybe only happened in, a, in, in fewer places, perhaps. Uh, I, I didn't really clock that as you know, some of those details as being tinged with the fantastic until I looked at other places. And they were like, as it happens, we did not have alligators in our backyard all the time. That, that seems sort of peculiar. Um, so, so I think that that sensibility is also, in, in addition to astrology, also shaped by place to a certain degree. Yeah, Florida's weird. Um, to give you sort of the, the brief rundown of the book, if you don't already know, um, as you heard in the reading, we're dealing with a protagonist named Claire, whose husband has died. She's gone to this um, film conference in Havana instead, and the book is divided into thirds. And the first third is essentially Claire in Havana at the conference. The second section is um, Claire has seen her husband in Havana, and has followed him into the interior of the country of Cuba. And the third section is Claire leaving the interior uh, coming back to Havana and then eventually going back to Florida. Um, Laura's first novel, uh, Find Me, which is incredible if you haven't read it, please, please do, um, is in two sections. This book is distinctly in three sections. So I'm going to give you a two-part question. First part is easy, which is, is your next novel going to be in four sections? <laughs> kind of a joke. And the more serious question is, um, if this were a hard genre work, the kind of things that I read, like, again, the Dean Koontz, um, sort of horror mystery novels, we would be given an answer as readers to what the key to the mystery is. At some point, usually two-thirds of the way through the book, or maybe 75% of the way through the book, the reader would know for certain what the, the answer to the, set, the, to the protagonist's central question is. In this book, Claire sees her dead husband, follows him around the man, traces him to the center of Cuba, and we don't know throughout the novel whether he's dead or alive, whether he's a figment of her imagination and grief, or whether, in fact, he's faked his death somehow and is really living and in Cuba. Um, on the one hand, as a reader, I really want to know really the answer to the question. On the other hand, this is a book that's not necessarily going to give us that answer like a hard genre work would do. I'm curious to know not just the why of why you wrote this way, but I imagine there's some difficulty in maintaining that balance, in not providing that answer. Because I felt so desperately reading it. Like, is this Richard? It seems to me. When he first sees her, he says, Claire, what are you doing here? And you're like, ah. <laughs> so, how do you maintain that balance and that long run attention throughout the book? And um, this is a terrible other question. Why do you write that way? It seems like a difficult thing to do. Yes. All, yeah. I mean, novels are just a little period, right? And, you know, this, it finally, um, this is a dystopian novel. And it was fair to write. <laughs> it took a long time. And so for this one, I was like, OK, it will be set in our time. We'll all take place in one place. The clock will be more compressed. It will be a short book. It will be so much easier. Um, in fact, not. Uh, it, was just, it, was like a different, it was just a different kind of hard. Um, so sometimes you think you're maybe choosing a more straightforward path and just it, when in fact it's just like challenging in ways that you haven't yet foreseen. Um, so to also like connect this question to your earlier question about genre, because Richard is a horror film scholar, he plans for his film festival to interview director of film that he believes would be groundbreaking. And um, and so horror films are, uh, in terms of genre, like were a huge influence and very important for this book. Um, and. I think for me, you know, there are many, like there are many different kinds of novels, there are many different kinds of horror films. And the um, the, the the horror that I love the most uses these extreme dislocations of reality, these extreme ruptures of reality. You know, there's a monster in the house, there's a serial killer on the loose, etc., to get at fundamental human questions. Um, who can we trust? How well we know ourselves or those around us. How life secrets undo us, how we fail to reckon with our own history and what is the cost of that looking away, um, et cetera. And, um, but also, I think my favorite horror films really do dwell in the territory of the irresolvable um, and the questions that can be 
evoked and that can be given name and shape and body to, but can't necessarily be answered in a, in a definitive way. Um, I really love, I was sort of re recent film, but Jennifer Kent's movie, The Babadook, um, which is, this is not recognition, um, which is terrifying. And I think part of the reason it's really terrifying is there is, there is a creature in the house, there is a monster in the house, but um, you also have two characters, a mother and a son, who for various reasons are under really intense psychological pressure, and they're very isolated, and they have no outlet for that pressure. And, you know, and so there's this kind of ambiguity, like, is, is this monster, this creature, this outside force that's been kind of imposed upon them, or is this something that their psychological weather has generated? to some degree. And the kind of brilliant thing about that movie too is that the Babadook, the creature, is is never fully revealed. So the film never answers that question in a completely clear way. It was those types of horror movies, the ones that navigate the line between um, a sort of exterior happening and an interior happening that were the most influential and most important. It certainly shapes um, the way I approach the question of like what exactly is going on with Richard, um, and and I do think that that you know that that question of how Claire's perceiving reality, perceiving her marriage, does ultimately belong to the realm of the irresolvable. Um, and so I, I'm not and I'm not super interested in, in I guess resolving what can't be resolved, like in life or you know or perhaps in fiction. Um, but also there are a couple of subplots uh, that are resolved, and there was great you know there was great pleasure in that on the subside. Um, she's, she's carrying this mysterious white box that her husband was carrying, and you do find out what's in the box. And there's an actress that goes to the film festival, and you do find out what she's been up to and why she's gone missing and why she's sort of resurfaced. So there was, for all the kind of open-endedness in the book, there was also a lot of pleasure in tying um, certain strands in a, in a kind of cleaner, neater way. So you mentioned, well, we've mentioned a few horror films already, but as you heard in Laura's reading, um, her husband, Richard's, or Claire's husband, Richard, swaps out um, his sort of highbrow exorcist mug for a relatively lowerbrow Michael Myers mug. And I want to talk a bit about horror because I'm interested in one, the research you did for the book, and two, I like horror films. And there's certainly this divide between highbrow horror and lowbrow. The exorcist is probably the her highbrow horror film. Um, but Halloween in the 80s kind of opened this door to the serial horror movie, all these you know, sequel upon sequel upon sequel. Um, I'm curious to know, we're living in an era right now that's been compared by critics to the 80s as this really productive time for horror. And I think you probably know that if you've seen It Follows or Get Out or the new Boots Riley film, which happens to tackle the Boots Riley film. Sorry to bother you. Uh, we're living in a really interesting and strange time for horror, but we have a lot of kind of highbrow intellectual horror movies that are being made, um, at the same time that we have a literary novel about a horror scholar coming out, and he himself has sort of made the decision in the last year of his life to sort of more closely affiliate with the quote-unquote lowbrow or the accessible horror movie. I don't know if this has any thematic con connections to the book or not, but I will say that in watching how Claire and Richard's relationship sort of grows distant in the last year of Richard's life, um, I wonder if it was related to his interest in something more base or basic or lowbrow, and and her career, which is essentially she's an elevator tech who travels to the Midwest region to service elevators. And throughout this novel, uh, Laura is dealing with these liminal spaces: the space between the high ground and the low ground, the space between the East Coast and the West Coast, the Midwest, the space between life and death. She sees her dead husband in Cuba. It's a kind of purgatory. So this is a long-winded way of asking you how you can sustain a 200-plus page novel in this liminal space where you provide no answers, and how much research into film, into scholarship, um, that this took, because it seems like it took some real heavy lifting. Yeah. It did, it did. Um, the liminal spaces, I mean, that was definitely an ambition for this book, to work in liminal spaces and also transit spaces more Specifically, I find transit spaces fascinating, like airports, airplanes, hotel rooms. Yeah, elevators. right. I mean, elevators. They're um, 
I mean, there's so much changes there, and I think what's interesting about it is that there's a lot of intimacy, but there's a kind of pact of silence around the intimacy. So, for example, if you've ever been, you know, on an overnight flight, and the person next to you is slumped over and they're asleep, and you see them dreaming on the plane, I mean, that's such an intimate thing to witness in a stranger. Um, but also, it would be, in my, to my mind at least, sort of against social protocols to wake them up and be like, what are you dreaming about? <laughs> you know, is, is it a good dream? Is it a scary dream? Like, like there's this, this kind of pact of silence around all of that intimacy. I mean, we know, you know, hotel rooms are filled with evidence of <laughs> past guests in ways that you <laughs> just sort of decide, like, we're not going to think about it too hard, right?
public, private, and who fucking knows. One lived and one performed, and one a thundering mystery. Um, that struck me as both funny, and there's a lot of pressure I was like that in the book. As you heard in our reading, there's a lot of humor here too. Um, one of the best is a moment where someone questions whether sandals are appropriate footwear, and Claire points out that no one in Florida would ever like, defame sandals as footwear. Um, so there's a lot of humor here too, but this struck me as particularly impression and funny, but particularly apt for Claire's situation, which is it really is at heart a novel that asks the question, can we really know anyone? Can Claire really know Richard? And certainly she can't really know him post-mortem, but she attends the conference instead, attempting to do just that. So this question is really about um, that basic, that's it. Can you really know someone? Can Claire really ever know Richard? And when she encounters this ghostly version of Richard, whether it's him or not, we don't really know. Um, it doesn't seem to offer her closure, but it does seem to offer her a new way of knowing him. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's fair reading or not. Yeah, it uh, sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. Job done. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a, you know, that, that question of, um, I mean, I would imagine, you know, it's a question that most people in the room have probably tried to navigate one way or another, this, this sort of nobility. I mean, whether it's a, you know, romantic partner or a friend or, or a sibling or a parent um, tries to navigate that question of, of how, you know, how well can we know the people that are closest to us? And also, like, how much does that even matter? Um, in some ways, I think that the no, that unknowability can be frightening, but also it can be beautiful. It can be what keeps the person interesting after you know decades of marriage, or decades of friendship, or decades of you know of of having a conversation with your sister that can still sort of surprise you or delight you in some way that you you couldn't expect. So. I mean, again, to, to speak of elements that have that sort of opposite charge, to my mind at least, that the unknowabilities, the fundamental unknowability of other people seems, um, you know, both potentially alarming, but also potentially um, kind of necessary and important, um, and, and that there's, you know, there's beauty and wonderful surprise um, to be had. But, yeah, I think for Claire, you know, there... I think she's also a character where, in her mind, when she sort of enters into the film festival, she, you know, she is looking for a measure of closure, and that that's a tension that interests me. That you know, I, I mean, I think there's certain situations that where we're all looking for closure and 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 a sort of settled ending that life almost always really powerfully resists. And in some ways, I do think closure, the idea of closure, is a kind of fiction, um, but it is a fiction. Speaking for myself, at least, it is a fiction, nevertheless, that I, you know, I'm kind of continually drawn to and has, has you know, sought after. Um, so, so I think Claire is engaged in a kind of similar sort of pursuit, where she's trying to chase down something that isn't real and that isn't graspable. Um, and I also think she's a character who is avoiding certain things about herself, certain things about her own history, both. Recent history and more distant history, and it's kind of like this grain of sand in the corner of her eye. She can sense it, but she's sort of like, it's not there, it's not there, it's not there. Um, and that actually to sort of go back to an earlier thing that you brought up about the the, um, the prevalence for this kind of you know you know wonderful sort of um, run of really powerful horror films that come out in the last year. But I think one of the genre's most powerful properties is that in in the you know in, in its in its most artful incarnation, I think it's really not about the new thing that's happening. It's about the menace or the disturbance uh, uncovering the rot that has been there all along, which feels very relevant for our current moment. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, and, and that, I mean, that can take so many different contexts, but I think that the dislocation for Claire sort of forces her to look at stuff that she's been trying to ignore for a really long time, and then, um, and then at a certain point is unable to ignore it any longer. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> um, I've asked a couple of really long-winded questions, so I'd like to open it up now if you guys have questions. Yeah, we're on podcasts. Oh my gosh. 
Sorry. It wasn't, yeah, and I knew it was a play, but like, I can't call my book with that too long. So I'd be like, hideously misleading. Um, so thank goodness for Mike. I have to tell a quick anecdote because Laura mentioned her husband, Paul Yoon, who's a terrific writer. Um, his most recent collection of stories is called The Mountain. And um, I taught Laura's first book, Find Me, alongside uh, the title story of Paul's book. And when I told my students at the Stevens University, it was sort of a class called Optimistic Apocalypse. We were looking at books that sort of looked at, looked at the future in a, in a not entirely negative way because we see so much apocalypse in mind that's just a, a nuke goes off and you're fine. Um, sorry, podcast. Um, but in this class, look and find me. There's sort of an ending that you, you feel like, okay, maybe something, maybe, maybe it's not all over. And in the mountain, you similarly feel like, okay, these people will still exist. Um, when I told my students that the author of the mountain, the story, and the author of Find Me were married, I had one student, this kid Jordan, who was delightful, who was like, I don't know how they get along. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean, Jordan? He said, well, they're such different writers. And I said, that's really true. And Laura is working in a mode that's quite different than Paul's. So I'm just plugging in with another question here. Paul is a, maybe a quieter writer, more naturalistic in some senses. And all I mean there is that um, we're dealing with a world that maybe looks a bit more like our own, with protagonists who look a bit more like us, though not always. And Laura is often working with people who are kind of liminal or on the out, outer edges of society. And I'm curious to know, on Jordan's behalf, how do you make it work? Um, yeah, we are, no, it's true. Um, we're very different writers. We're very different readers. I always feel like like the gold standard for me to recommend a book to anyone, like, I was like, if Paul and I both love it, it actually transcends taste. You know what I mean? Like, like it's 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 like not a matter of like I loved it. This is so my thing or so in my wheelhouse. It, it like it is like above all of that. So there's this sort of list of books that I would recommend to anyone. So it's like, look, if we both liked it, there's a really good chance that you would like it too. Um, because because we have yeah, I mean, very different tastes in, in literature and in art, and we're very different writers. But I I think that I mean that almost feels we. Also, been together since our early twenties is all we know, um, you know. Uh, but it, but it does feel. I mean, I think it's necess necessary in some ways because we've both been able to carve out our own space. Even though we're both fiction writers, it does feel like we're kind of working in our own separate thing. And and there's a little bit of air there, and also surprise too, you know, um, to go back to sort of surprise and nobility, a nobility where I like I don't really understand how Paul does what he does on the page, but I love what he does. Um, and I love and I love not knowing or not really being able to understand like how he tracks narrative or how he shapes narrative or how he gets there. But I love being able to experience it when it's finished. Do you read for each other? Yes, I. He he does he writes like one draft very slowly and revises line by line. And so when he gives me something to read, I'll be like. This is amazing, and maybe you should take out the comma on page four, but that's sort of it. Whereas I'm like just vomiting out draft after draft after draft after draft after draft. So he reads more of my stuff than I read of his stuff. Um, but but yes, we do. Thank you very much. Very fascinating. When I was growing up, I used to watch when I could stay up late, uh, Arthur Hitchcock's uh, movies and some uh, television specials. And he was really deep into horror films, writing and producing and all that. So was there anything from the Hitchcock era you were able to take to put in some of your stories to make it more potent, as we say? Um, because every time when I finished watching, and I remember I was growing up, I had to look under the bed to see if anything unusual was under there. Thank you. Yes, definitely. I mean, a lot of um, I mean, Hitchcock has been very influential. I think particularly Vertigo um, is, is one for sure. And you know, and a lot of his movies do really live in that that there is that sort of ambiguity between you know an outside presence or an outside evil and and what the, the psychological weather the characters are generating. And I mean, I think he's also you know a master of atmosphere. In, in many ways, and, and atmospheres, you know, something I love in film, something I love in fiction, also. 
Hi. I have a question along a somewhat similar vein. So you had mentioned earlier that, you know, opposed to as far as influence from um, the horror genre, as opposed to a certain era, you're more influenced by um, works that maybe you know bring to light more social issues in horror, um, that sort of thing. And I was just wondering if possibly you could um, talk a little more about that, maybe give some examples of some things that you know fit into that category that have inspired you. Um, you know, thank you for the question. I'm always so excited to talk about horror movies. I've been looking forward to this just, yes, for, for months. Um, I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of horror films that I like. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I love the original Halloween. I mean, which is, you know, I, I don't know if it's a novel, like, sort of deepest exploration or deepest social engagement, but um, but it's also like, it's a structurally perfect movie. Um, and it's all about the art of anticipation. And it's like 85 minutes long, like, timeless. And there are no murders for the first 55 minutes. Um, and and so it's all, it's all anticipatory. And it's, all, it's all sort of dread-oriented. And there's this massive unleashing, you know, in that class. Um, 20 minutes, that last half an hour, uh, and it's increasingly sort of sense of, you know, winnowing spaces and, and claustrophobia and so on. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, that's a movie where, it, I mean, it's scary, and it also, I really admire the atmosphere and structure and timing and the pacing. Um, in terms of, you know, horror films that I, I feel like are dealing with uh, social questions in, in really powerful ways. Um, I loved a movie, uh, this is a recent movie also called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, um, which maybe some of you have seen, yeah. Um, and that's also a movie that really appeals to me too because it combines so many different genres. Um, it's like it's like a spaghetti western vampire movie and, you're sort of like, and it's black and white and it's super, super stylish, and it's punk and goth and retro and industrial and contemporary all at the same time. And, and it's an interesting, you know, I mean, it's, and you think it is it's also sort of like a feminist revenge narrative um, in, a, in a nuanced, complicated way. Um, and so, th so that, that was a, yeah, a recent movie that I really loved. Um, I found, I imagine a lot of you have seen Get Out, yeah, um, which I also thought was in, like incredible and ter and terrifying in, in that uh, in the way that I think you know again the the sort of most powerful incarnations um, of the genre are where you know where it, it really ultimately is about sort of exposing what has been so systemically violent and so rotten for so long and putting us putting it in this context where it's impossible to not confront and to not really sort of move into that into that space of horror. So those are yeah, those are two that come to mind. You mentioned sense of place before. I was wondering how did you come about choosing uh, Havana as a setting for this? Is there indeed a horror film festival in Havana? I know that you went down there several times to do research. So what goes into the decisions of what to use and what to discard? Thank you. Um, so in terms of the setting, there were a couple of different uh, impetuses to ground the, the film festival in Havana. Um, there's not, a, as best I know, a horror film festival in Havana, there is an, an annual film festival called the um, Festival of New Latin American Cinema, which I did. I did do several research trips to Havana, and I did attend that film festival. I'd actually never been to a film festival of any kind before, and it was it was fantastic. I watched like seven movies a day, and you know, it was, it was great. Um, but the the first. Um, I, it's my practice when I'm between projects to keep what I call a thought log, which is exactly what it sounds like, which is just sort of a, a space to kind of record um, what's weighing on my imagination. And there were a couple of things that kept coming up. Um, one was horror films, 
one with the idea of this couple from Claire and Richard. It sort of started in a short story, but now kind of transmuted into a, you know, a, a different thing for the characters that were in the short story. Um, and another was travel, both in the in the context of work and tourism. And, and I think I do think you know, being from Orlando, even though it's not at all a comparable context to Havana, um, but being from a part of the state that is so where culture and economy are so powerfully shaped by tourism, it's just a landscape I've been interested in for a long time. That question of sort of how do we narrate the places we travel to and what's highlighted and what's left out of the narration altogether. Um, and then there were two kind of specific things that um, that led me to Havana. The first was that when President Obama loosened the travel restrictions, all of a sudden, um, like every American travel magazine was like Havana, and in, and in the Amer in, in the very American way, it was like, look at this amazing place that we've discovered. We're like, actually not, but okay. Um, and so many travel bloggers were writing about Havana, and so and so on and so forth. And um, and I and I became very interested in how the city was being navigated uh, and narrated during this sort of influx of American tourism. And again, what was being highlighted in those narratives and what was being left out entirely. Um, I, I found it like an interesting kind of fact that when I was doing research um, that. You know, that Havana actually had been very popular with American tourists in the early 1900s. It was connected to the American uh, um, occupation in Cuba. And so it was sort of that like, kind of reframed how I understood this new surge of American tourists, that it was really not this new thing, but was part of this continuing loop of history and was very um, you know, integrally linked to um, empire. Uh, and and you, could, you really could see that, I think, in some ways, in the, in the travel pieces that were being written about, um, about Havana in particular. Um, so that whole landscape was of great interest to me. And the other piece is a horror movie that hasn't come up, but that also would go to your question about horror that engages you know, social questions. Um, in 2011, this wonderful zombie movie came out um, called Plot of the Dead. And it was widely regarded uh, by many critics as Cuba's first horror movie. And it's really, really good and very political in, um, and very politically interesting, I think, in, in kind of sneaky, subversive ways and just like bloody and funny and really great. Uh, and so that, that was, um, there's a film within this novel that's loosely based on that, that real life movie. Um, and that, that sort of is another link. Would you all join me in giving Laura a hand? This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.